I figured, you know, if you can restore a three-panel Cinerama and make it look as good as we did, and you could do it out of your home office, people should be restoring movies like crazy. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It was the biggest show on earth for the decade it lasted. Cinerama changed movie history, but then it was lost to history. Restorationist Dave Strohmeyer takes us on a Cinerama adventure that roams the whole world, from World War II and the Cold War to Smell-O-Vision. And help keep Nitrateville Radio from a similar fate of disappearance. You can help spread the word by subscribing at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and by leaving us a rating and a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks. So back in the 90s, I wrote, or really compiled, a book called The Encyclopedia of Movie Awards. Besides the Oscars and the Palm d'Ors and things like that, it included box office listings by year, so you could compare the awards against the ultimate prize, ticket sales. Compiling that, I found not only big hits that people had mostly forgotten about, but to my surprise, there was an entire class of box office hits, some of the biggest movies of the 1950s and 1960s, which were not only hard to see, they were impossible to see. Massive moneymakers in their day, by the 1990s they were effectively lost films. These missing chapters in film history all had one thing in common, the process they were made in. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Cinerama. Cinerama. Three larger-than-normal film panels projected side-by-side side to provide the illusion of a wraparound immersion in the image with stereophonic sound for comparable depth of audio. Cinerama launched the widescreen film revolution that has lasted to this day, and it was a box office sensation for over a decade. But cumbersome to make films in and to project, it eventually gave way to easier processes like anamorphic 70mm, and quickly became impossible to revive in its original form by the late 1960s. Except that a few collectors did manage to keep it alive, doing what was basically underground Cinerama. And a few years after my book came out and these films seemed entirely unseeable, in 1998 I actually did get to see Cinerama at the New Neon Theater in Dayton, Ohio, where manager Larry Smith and collector John Harvey had brought it back. Dave Strohmeyer is a retired TV editor for shows like Northern Exposure and for the Disney Parks. 
He saw Cinerama when it first came out, and he also saw it again many years later at the new Neon. That led him to make a documentary called Cinerama Adventure, about the history of the process and its 90s revival, and then to work on bringing Cinerama back digitally. By now, he's restored all of Cinerama's original travelogue hits on home video through Flickr Alley, as well as films in rival formats including Cinemiracle and the Russian Kino Panorama. Ten titles in all, most in the Smilebox format that lets you imagine the image wrapping around you as it did in the 1950s. To mark his final releases from the Cinerama era, The Golden Head and The Flying Clipper, I spoke with him at his home in L.A. Let's just start, I think, with uh, defining what Cinerama is. I think if people know the name, they kind of know it's like a widescreen process, but it's it's a little more than that. So tell me what Cinerama really was. Well, uh, Cinerama actually evolved into other things, too, as well, but it started off as the three panels, six perf high as opposed to four normal 35-millimeter film, so it had a higher you know, ceiling. And three were placed together or laced together with the three projectors running at the same time on a big curved screen, 146-degree curved screen, and it would give you the feeling of depth and reality. And, and uh, as Lowell Thomas used to say, it's more real than real. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, the Madison Avenue hype, of course, but... It did have a three-dimensional feel, even though there was no glasses involved or anything, because you felt like you were in the picture. If you were watching a Cinerama movie that had a lot of aerials or something flying over buildings and whatever, and the and the and the the plane would tilt a little bit, you'd feel, you know, a, a movement. You'd feel a little bit dizzy, perhaps in some cases, but you'd feel like the whole theater was moving. Yeah, so it was really that wraparound effect that's distinct from other widescreen processes where it's yeah. wide, but it's still basically a rectangle that you're conscious of. And the lenses were extremely wide angle. Each lens was 27 uh, millimeters. So when you combine three of those together, it's like super wide angle, sort of the same what a human eye would see if you were standing in a certain spot and you'd look out and you'd see where your peripheral vision vision ended and started and all that, it would pretty much equal what you would have seen in in Cinerama if you were in certain seats, you know, prime seats and stuff. But it had a three-dimensional feel, and I always like to say to people that, you know, a, a curved image on a screen, uh, because the, your eyeball is registering images on a curved surface as well. In fact, it's the opposite curve. So I am always wondered if there was some kind of a play in your brain that was creating something a little bit more than the normal, you know, bump to that, you know. Had this idea of, like, surrounding your periphery, I mean, people point to things like Abogance's Napoleon with its three images side by side, but that still was essentially just widescreen made of three images. It's, it's not the wraparound effect. Were there really precursors to that? A, a little bit. I think at the Paris Exposition in 18, I'm going to get the year wrong, could have been 1898 or something like that, they had a something called Cineorama, and it was somehow projected on a, a big curved screen and you would stand inside of this this balloon or something and, <laughs> and it would you'd see these images all the way around you sort of 360 degree I believe and so you got a interesting feeling although they abandoned it right away because there was a big accident and there was a fire that started and people were hurt and stuff so it kind of just vanished after that but it was called Cineorama. <laughs> huh. now and and it's kind of like there was that uh 
what was the thing at Disneyland? Uh, I remember going to uh, it when Circle it Vision. A, right. Where it's multiple cameras, and that was rear projection, right? No, it was straight a straight on projection. Oh, okay. In fact, I was the editor on two of those films. Oh. Uh, uh, when I worked at Disney in the in the early uh, '80s for Epcot projects, you know, like they had a, a, a China pavilion, they had a Canadian pavilion, and then at the same time they're working on Tokyo Disneyland, and I did one of the films over there called Magic Carpet Round the World. So you had nine panels of 35 millimeter, in this case four perf, not six like Cinerama, and it would completely surround you. So editing that was a little crazy because you had to cut nine pieces of film and. And then, of course, you had all the uh, six channel of soundtrack that went along with it and everything. So it was pretty interesting to to play with, I guess. Luckily, all the films were about 20 minutes long, so it wasn't like a feature or anything. And in those, didn't you just stand there and sort of look wherever you wanted to look? It's not like you were in a seat or anything. Yeah, pretty much. They had railings that you'd hold on to because people were getting dizzy and and swaying with the picture. You know, if you just like Cinerama, if the camera tilted, you'd kind of lean a little bit and you'd hold on to this thing and and the kids would be running between your legs and it was kind of crazy. But the projection room was behind each one of the screens in between the two of the screens so there was a piece of masking so to speak between each one of these nine panels and that's where the projector shot through to go to the opposite side of the of the room for the 360 so it was interesting a projection room that you could roller skate all the way around you know <laughs> how many projectionists would it have uh, was it just one guy keeping everything spinning or Pretty much on Circle Vision, you didn't almost didn't need anybody other than daily maintenance because everything was automatic, and they were in loop, what they call loop cabinets. So a 20-minute film would fit inside this cabinet, and it was all sunk up. So when it stopped, everything stopped in sync. When it started again with you know some black film between each performance, so to speak. Uh, so really didn't need any maintenance unless the film would break, and it was mylar, so it very rarely broke. You know, it wasn't like regular film that would have a film would snap and break. All right, well, back to Cinerama um, before we go down too too many rabbit holes here. Um, so Fred Waller is the inventor of it, and what's what's his story? Well, he was basically a, a special effects guy, sort of an inventor, a, a still photographer, a jack-of-all-trades. He was in charge of the Paramount Effects Department at, on the East Coast, you know, at Astoria Studios. So whenever somebody came along with a project where they needed a shipwreck or some interesting effect that had to happen, he would kind of design it and make it make it happen correctly. He did a lot of work for, you know, early filmmakers like DeMille and, uh, you know, this, you know, you name the names from the silent era. And he, he was like the expert guy to come to when you had a special effect shot you needed or something. Then eventually he got involved in World's Fairs and, and you know, the 1939 World's Fair and helped design stuff. A lot of things were slideshows and various kinds of presentations, visual presentations, as well as sound. And uh, out of that, he, the, when World War II came along, he came up with the Waller Flexible Gunnery Trainer, which saved 150,000 lives in World War II, they estimate, because of the effectiveness of this of training gunners when they were, you know, shooting down planes and stuff. And that's how it started. That was kind of like, I mean, kind of like the circle vision thing in that it allowed people to experience what it would be like being in the in the aircraft or and you didn't need circle vision. You it was sort of a 
kind of a pie-shaped thing, what they call a colada, which kind of hovers over you. If you know anything about Omnimax, it would be a similar but smaller version of Omnimax. Okay. Uh, and then it took five, I think it was five 35-millimeter projectors would project, you know, training films, and there'd be electronic triggers that, that on the screen that would somehow trigger to keep track of how many hits you made. So it was effective as far as you know windage elevation you know uh, instead of they used to, the way they used to train these guys is they'd tow flags and then you'd go up in a plane and shoot at the flags and then uh, the bullets would have different colors so you'd know if you hit something or or not this way totally got rid of that and made it all antiquated and now it's more of an electronic thing to train people and it really increased uh, they they say it increased your accuracy by almost 80 percent hmm. so it was pretty spectacular. Yeah, it really was. Well, it's interesting. I mean, there's almost inevitably anything from the 50s. There's sort of a Cold War feel to look at how great America is and look at all these. And then later, look at all these countries around the world. And we are all friends and that sort of thing. And <laughs> it kind of segues nicely from the wartime mentality of that to the Cold Wartime mentality of, of the Cinerama era. How it sort of started, Cinerama, you know, for public you know, with the three panels was because a lot of guys that were trained on this device said, this is an interesting way to see movies. We wish we could see real movies. And they were writing Fred Waller letters. And then all of a sudden he scratches his head and said, well, maybe we should come up with something. Uh, of course, it was impractical to come up with this five uh, ca- camera set up with the, the Omnimax dome kind of thing that you look up into. It was, uh, you know, they decided to make it a little bit easier to operate by having three panels and a curved screen. So, And because if Cinerama was known for anything, it was being easy to operate, I'm sure. Uh, with yeah, your... right. <laughs> Cinerama gives us just about the full scope of normal vision in which you see so much out of the corner of your eye. That feeling of reality depends on vision off to the side although you may be hardly conscious of it. All right, so he tries pitching it for a few years, doesn't get very far, finally attracts Lowell Thomas, who attracts uh, Marion Cooper and various other people, and that's how Cinerama is born. I think Mike Todd was almost the first guy, and then he got Lowell Thomas involved, and then Marion C. Cooper came later when they ended up getting rid of, of Mike Todd, you know. We cover all that in that documentary I made in 2002 called Cinerama Adventure, which shows the evolution of everything, uh, of how what triggered what. You know, even the Rockefellers invested in, in Cinerama at one time. So, How do you think people saw it then? Did they think all movies are going to be like this soon? It's going to be like sound? or A little bit, yeah. It was kind of a, a thing where... where uh, they would show it to all the studio heads and they would kind of turn it down. Oh, it's too complicated. We'll never, you know, they're used to the one, three, three, four, man. It was so easy to use. And our directors are used to this and all that. Now we're in this different world here with these three panels and stuff. So they kind of rejected it at first. So that's when they got investors to come up with uh, ways to, to, they rented the Broadway theater in New York and put it on themselves pretty much with some investment money. And it just became an immediate hit after that. And now everybody wanted something, you know, so, but they all still wanted things cheaper. Like Fox went after CinemaScope, which had been invented in the 1920s or something. And they went after that because that's close as they could get to Cinerama and yet be some reasonably simple, you know. Well, there'd been experimentation with widescreen in the 
early talkie era. Um, yeah. But that was Grandeur, mostly... Fox Grandeur. Uh, there was various 70 millimeter formats that uh, I think there were two or three of them uh, that didn't quite catch on after one or two movies. And uh, they did a Western. What was it? I think John Wayne was in it. Yeah, The Big Trail. I think it was and the Big Trail. There's yeah. also Billy the Kid. Uh, right. You know, Bat but, Whispers. Yeah. yeah. But those were all, I mean, they were all basically like 70 millimeter processes, I think. Nothing was yeah. anamorphic at that point, right? No, it was it was regular lenses, but a 70 projector. And yeah. uh, in some cases, it wasn't five perf like modern 70 millimeter. It was four perf. I think The Big Trail was only four perfs. Yeah, it's not that wide. It's just, yeah. uh, it's kind of more like the difference between your 4x3 TV and your 16x9 TV. Yeah. All right, so this is Cinerama comes along, huge hit. I mean, it's really a travelogue. I kind of think in some ways that it's a little bit there, that, you know, they had Fantasia in mind as kind of a a one of those things where you had like different pieces of uh you know and now we're going to show you this um You're right yeah but i don't know how much if there are other precursors i don't think so they did they shot some tests you know driving around on top of a station wagon uh, you know down windy roads and stuff like that they shot a bunch of material very little of it survives we found one or two things uh, but then when they decided that it needed to be more like a demo film without a story essentially except cypress gardens sort of has a story i guess uh, it was meant to be a, a demonstration film, which would wow you within the first, you know, after the prologue, you know, because it was everybody was used to seeing that one three three image. So they showed you that one three three image, and so when it burst into the roller coaster, it was like people's mouths dropped and something. And they did some a couple of aerials over Niagara Falls, and then they showed the stereophonic sound from the black and white choir, which was one of the original tests for this is Cinerama, just to see how stereo sound was going to work and how they were going to mix it coming from the surrounds first down into the front of the stage and stuff to sort of get you aware of what, what the sound is going to be like for the rest of the movie. And then it was basically a demonstration film after that, you know, uh, operas, you know, <laughs> you name it. They tried to throw everything in there. They shot a lot more than ended up in the movie that they never used, but... Uh, Oh, really? The Flight Over America. Oh, yeah, they shot tons of stuff. Uh, choirs singing, all kinds of stuff. I mean, they did have some choirs. They had the Vienna right. Boys Choir and stuff. But, it, you know, how many choirs can you take? In exactly. Movie, I think know? there's enough choirs in This Is Cinerama <laughs> for yeah, my taste. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Greatness and beauty of America, pictured with a splendor never seen before. The thing that I find odd, okay, so they went with 26 frames a second. Why? What was the advantage of bumping it up from the 24 that was standard at the time? A little bit, mostly to get rid of as much flicker as they could. Okay. Um, and and part of and to create sort of a different feel, you know, like the difference between 24 frames and and video. Everybody says it looks like a soap opera, you know, because it's 30 frames a second or whatever. So they wanted to give a, add a little extra dimension there too. But it was mostly about the flicker, how you could get rid of flicker. So yeah, because it just seems such an incremental difference. Todd yeah. AO would be 30 frames a second, and you can see a real yeah, difference there. Right. I have the old laser disc of Oklahoma, and you can see it on that. 
Um, but yeah, 26 is just not, it's 112. So it more. still looked like film, and yet it was slicker, more slicker less, you know. And in Todd I.O. with 30 frames a second had more of a, of, I suppose, a video feel, even though it was on film, you know, because motion was smoother and stuff, right. you know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it, other things at high frame rates, you really see that video effect. Maybe yeah. just because it's such beautiful Technicolor, Oklahoma seems kind of one of a kind to me. Although yeah. I know there's also a, uh, around the world in the eighty days, but you know this that combination of sort of lush fifties color and the thirty frames movement. You know, there's yeah. nothing there's nothing <laughs> else like it. I don't know. Right. Um, <laughs> all right, so. This is Cinerama comes out fifty two huge hit I believe the highest grossing movie of 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 the fifty three the, the year really. yeah. yeah yeah although I'm sure that's a big part of that obviously is that it was a higher ticket price and yeah well it could it be yeah and the fact that it was uh, I mean they were it was up against things like gosh what was it that year Great Show on Earth uh, yeah Singing in the Rain High Chain Moon, or something yeah yeah. Yeah, it was up against a lot of stuff, and it only played in one or two theaters, one to begin with, and then then they hurried up to take it to Detroit right after that to yeah. open up another theater. But every every performance was sold out. You know. Yeah, and you know, people talk about it kicking off uh, the whole widescreen thing in the fifties, which it certainly did. You had. Like you said, uh, Fox going in for CinemaScope, and you'd eventually have VistaVision and other things. Um, but it also kind of brought back something that had existed briefly before the war, particularly with Gone to the Wind, and then kind of went away again, which was this idea of treating movies like theater that yeah. you know you you had reserved seats you paid a, a higher price you got a program book i mean i have my great grandparents program book from when they saw around the world in 80 days you know oh, it's right. a very yeah. very handsome you know 48 page color book or whatever it was and yeah. and some of the cinerama releases reproduced those those books as well yeah. um so right. it was just it, it was really it was all part of that we've got to be more than tv yeah, Attitude, somewhat. Time. Yeah, I mean, America was just you know after the war and everything they were they were building uh, night baseball diamonds and stuff like people just had more things to do. National parks were opening up, people were getting in their cars driving. Sometimes they had family had two cars, you know, to a certain extent, and so people wanted to do stuff. Well, part of doing stuff in a way, Cinerama fit in, in the sense that it was never in every city. You had to get in your station wagon and drive, you know, 100 miles or 50 miles to go to the nearest big city to see Cinerama. This is, we're talking 54, 55 now. But that was part, became part of that family adventure, which is how I experienced it the same way, is that we all traveled to a different city to see it because that made it even more special, you know. Yeah, tell me about uh, your first Cinerama experience. Well, it's uh, probably 56. Six or seven, I can't really pin down the year, but I think I was six or seven years old at the time. And, uh, you know, there was always Mother's Day and Father's Day. and uh, But there wasn't a Children's Day yet, so my sister and I lobbied for, well, wait, how come we don't have a Children's Day, you know? And uh, so little, uh, eventually they said, all right, we'll have a Children's Day. You know, it'll be between Mother's Day and Father's Day, you know, somewhere in between. So they took us to St. Louis. Actually, it was a reason for my dad to go to St. Louis because he was a pilot and he wanted to see the new airport they built there, a very 50s style. In fact, I was just there yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Was, uh, you know, there. And then he wanted to see that. So at the same time, 
Cinerama was so had become so popular that almost every kid in grade school knew about it. They'd never seen it, but they'd heard about it, and they knew that word it became a household word eventually. You know. So let's go to that Cinerama theater, Mom. You know, oh, all right. You know, and so we ended up going to the Ambassador Theater in downtown St. Louis to see Seven Wonders of the World, and everyone was blown away. I mean, I think it was a, we had the cheap seats, so we're way on the balcony. So. Uh, <laughs> But I felt like the whole theater was moving when they were flying over pyramids and stuff. And so it was something that my sister and I had remembered ever since then. You know, remember right. that? Oh, yeah, wasn't that great? You know, that kind of thing. Little did I know I'd be the guy that would save that movie you know, <laughs> however many years later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I went to Disneyland when I was about 10, and it's it's the same way. I can pretty much tell you to this day what I did hour by hour. And, you know, yeah. with, the, with the the high points of, you know, the Monsanto ride into the atom and all these things <laughs> were, so. Yeah, when I, worked, when, I, when I worked at Disney, I got to go behind the scenes a lot down there when we'd run dailies and circle vision and stuff. So I've been to... Space Mountains, the lights on, uh, behind the right. scenes of Haunted, <laughs> Haunted Mansion and all those things, which does take away some of the, you know, glamour, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so this is Cinerama, comes out in 52. Yeah, how many theaters did it really play even in nationwide ever, or worldwide for that matter? Oh, eventually it played in quite a few theaters. Uh, of course, the latter days, some of those were just 70 millimeter, but right. uh, I would say it's around... 230 or so theaters around. I mean, they had one in downtown Tehran. They had one in Havana, Cuba. They had, they, they grew all over the place. Right. Germany itself had something like 20 Cinerama theaters in various cities, which was very unusual. Most countries would have, you know, the big city and then maybe another big city nearby that would also have it. You know. Good morning. This is Captain von Charner. Please fasten your seat belts. It may be bumpy. Thank you. And welcome to Switzerland, a pleasant Cinerama holiday. So the next one was Cinerama Holiday in 1955, which it tends to be more more fun and and more focused than this is Cinerama on moving you know on you sitting there as the camera races through something i think they found that right. that was kind of the killer app for cinerama was that yeah. sensation of of moving which of course was the the roller coaster at the beginning of this is cinerama and an interesting thing about that one to me is that they have the hint of a story you've got a uh, an american couple and now i've forgotten the nationality of the the other couple what are they they German? were swiss swiss yeah, okay swiss. Yeah. and they basically each travels to the other's part of the world but they right. barely exist really in the films i mean it's not like dramatize their experiences in any way and i think is that was that where they kind of discovered the flaw of trying to use cinematic cinerama dramatically do you think I think they wanted to try to keep it more travelogy and yet throw some personalities in there that you're following along, you know. But it, they ended up the couples would sort of narrate this as opposed to a, an outside narrator. Yeah, pretty much was narrated by the couple and they're very experiencing things. So even though you didn't see them on the screen that much, you'd hear somebody talk. You know, you'd hear the husband or wife talk. But uh, you know, here we are at uh, you know Notre Dame or something. You know, right. Were they thinking about using it dramatically by that yeah, point? Yeah, from day one. 
from day one they were thinking about it, and one of the things they were they had thought about doing was the the Broadway play Paint Your Wagon. Oh. Uh, because Louis B. Mayer, after he was kicked out of MGM, they kind of needed a name to be president of Cinerama for a while. I don't know how long it lasted, maybe a year. And and he happened to own the rights to Paint Your Wagon, so he was pushing to have that done. But nobody could quite figure out how you, you know, like do a kiss in three panels or something. You know? <laughs> Because you can't do close-ups very good, you know. So, yeah. what? How do we do that, you know? But uh, uh, so they, it was. It eventually evolved to the point where when they did how the West was won, things, you know, you brought more of that narrative thing and the actors and things. But uh, but this time they they were a little nervous about doing anything too, you know, dramatic because the travelogue thing was such a cash cow, you know. Right. Yeah. So they made several of those. There's Seven Wonders of the World and. I mean, then it's, it's really starts to be, um, well, I guess from Cinerama Holiday on, it's really kind of, we're going to show you the world, international travel, yeah. that sort of thing. We're going on a flight around the world in our Cinerama Clipper, an air voyage to five continents in search of the wonders of the world. And before we set forth on this odyssey, let's put on seven league boots and pay our respects to the only one of the ancient seven that remains. Through the magic of Cinerama. Uh, Seven Wonders of the World, Search for Paradise, South Seas Adventure are all kind of in that uh, that vein. As so many things in the in the 50s were. I mean, there's there are just a lot of those kind of three coins in the fountain type movies that right. were yeah. set in foreign countries, which in theory you, people were starting to travel to them, but for most people, I'm sure we're still out of reach. So. Pretty much, but Cinerama did spawn a lot of travel. Uh, even after this is Cinerama flying over the Grand Canyon, that was when they started the aerial uh, tours of the Grand Canyon. Was right after that, people kept asking for, well, how can we fly over the, and they called them the Cinerama Canyons. They didn't call it the Grand Canyon. They <laughs> Cinerama Canyon. We want to see those. You know? And uh, uh, so things like that were starting to happen where people were starting to think more about travel and stuff. And, uh, you know, you can go to a movie to see a movie star, but, you know, I want to see the world kind of thing. You know? Yeah. But, uh, you know, and Fox kind of caught on to that because they started making travelogues and CinemaScope, you know, short ones like 20 minutes and stuff, you know. Well, let's talk about the cultural impact of it because, I mean, that's one of the things that I think is really interesting. Uh, I mean, the whole idea, just using Rama as a suffix yeah. to indicate size and moderness and coolness and all that. I mean, you know, people <laughs> were naming their laundromats, you know, Washerama by that point. Oh, so. right. Yeah, and there were panoramic windshields on cars that came out about 54, I think, 55. They were doing that. Uh, they had a show uh, of, I think, General Motors called Autorama, where they were advertising the panoramic windshield, you know. So uh, a lot of stuff, you know, hamburgers were named, you know, the so-and-so burger, Ram, Burger-Rama, and right. Laundrama, like you said. <laughs> it just caught on all over the place because Cinerama, at that, by that time, had become a household word. Every kid knew about it. You know? Yeah. To go through the the uh, various uh, travelogue films all through the 50s, they're all hits. They they all do very well. Um, the the one that I think is kind of interesting, uh, shoot, which one is it? Is Search for Paradise, where one of the stars yeah. died in the process of making it? Yeah. yeah talk about that. Uh, well, they were shooting, that was going to be their roller coaster thing, was the uh, ride down the Indus River, you know, river rafting uh, kind of thing. You know, like rough, rough water rocks and, you know, 
paddling through the danger of that, and that was going to have the camera on the front of it. And so they were shooting two or three days there, and then all of a sudden, one of the actors who, you know, like you say, the actors don't show up that much. You kind of hear them talk once in a while, and then you see them, and then, then they go away for a while as you see scenery. But uh was named, uh, I forget his name now, Jim was his name, uh, Parker, I believe, and he wanted to get on one of these takes where they were going to go down the river and he did but he didn't have his life jacket on Uh. and so the boat hit an unexpected rock flipped everything over they lost the camera and everything and he ended up being the only one that never showed up that uh so they knew he had drowned uh so then everybody came home and then but they needed more footage so they ended up getting insert sort of footage at the grand canyon after that to make the sequence complete because at that point everybody just you know called off the shoot and went home yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was a, you know, they lost a camera and a crew member there. So. Hmm. What were their resources? I mean, did they have a number of cameras, or that was kind of, yeah. now we have to go build another one? They had the they had the original camera, which is camera number one, which was the Cruder camera. They shot, this is Cinerama with that. And they were supposed to use that camera only when they were going to be a dangerous shot because they could afford to lose that one, in theory. Hmm. And they had built five others, that were a new, more modern, easy-to-handle, easy-to-thread cameras, uh, and that one was the one that was on the river raft and got destroyed. So uh, I, I don't know what they were valued, but the insurance company covered it, but they never rebuilt another camera after that. They still had enough to to make the movies they wanted to make, you yeah. know, because How the West is One and Brothers Grimm were shot about the same time, so they had to have a couple of cameras here, uh, uh, you know, shooting West and a a couple in Europe, so they had no problem with four or five cameras. Plus, they had that original number one camera, which was the hard one to thread. They kind of used it like uh, if you're in the business and you know DPs and cameramen, they'd say it's like the IMO of the Cinerama (laughs) cameras. Because you can drop it and it won't hurt anything. It'll just, we just go to the next camera. So that was expendable, that one, so... But it still exists. It's in storage right now. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about the the technical aspects of of shooting. There was obviously a lot of issues in that. I mean, if you've got three separate cameras, you can't, you don't have a consistent panorama of vision. You have the illusion that you're creating of that, and you're going to blow the illusion in a lot of ways, so... It mainly involved people, if if you're in one panel and somebody else is in the next panel, it involved a different kind of an eye line, so it looked like you were looking at each other. That was the main problem. Plus, you couldn't, if you wanted to be closer, or, or you know, you couldn't zoom, because these lenses were fixed, you had to dolly towards that person or whatever. And you couldn't get too close, because then everything would get out of alignment if you got into a, a traditional close-up. Yeah. So... A traditional close-up would be like from your belt up to the top of your head, and you'd have to be in one of those panels as opposed to being split in half by a <laughs> by a panel blend line, you know. So they had to choreograph everything and block everything out, which meant generally more rehearsal, at least in Hallowes' One and Brothers Grimm. You had a lot more rehearsal. It was less spontaneous than a travelogue where you had mountain ranges and stuff, you know. And then from the projection side, I mean, let's talk about that. What was it like presenting a Cinerama film? It's kind of nerve-wracking because uh, even though everything was upgraded and and even John Harvey with one guy was able to run uh, the whole show, essentially, by running back and forth to the different booths and stuff, you know. 
uh, at the dome, our booths are uh, separated by many more feet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd really have to run <laughs> to get to the other side. It's all one big curved room, but whereas John had to go in and out of doors and stuff. But um, it's complicated in the sense that you have to talk to people by yelling. You know, are you ready, camera? Uh, Charlie, Charlie Pan, are you ready? Able? Yes, I'm ready. Are you? You know, it's you're yelling it, or you have a, a micro, uh, what do you call it, intercom thing, and then somebody does a countdown, and then if it goes ha- goes wacky, you have to stop it right there and rethread back on a certain number, and that takes time. Meanwhile, the audience is, you know, whatever, getting a little nervous. So it every time we've run it for the public with the exception of when we ran brothers Grimm in 2012, uh, because it was an older print and it was very fragile and it would break and stuff, you know, it would, whenever we run how the West was wanted for the audience, it always works perfect. When we're rehearsing it, it always breaks down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how many years and off of your life has Cinerama projection cost you? <laughs> Well, we, it's a volunteer thing. We volunteer. John uh, Siddig uh, volunteers. I volunteer to run Abel. Uh, Jose is a uh, 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 Martinez is, is at the dome. He's a permanent employee, and he knows how to do it. And we've trained one of the guys there. But whenever we run it, and we're theoretically planning to run it this August at some point, where we're going to run the three panel again. It's a whole day of almost a half a day of rehearsal, running both acts to make sure everything's oiled up and you know tweaking and stuff. You know. And then we get everything ready for the performance four or five days later, and then and then we don't do any more rehearsals. But it was we just have to make sure that equipment is running. You know, there's belts, rubber belts and stuff that you got to make sure there's no cracks in, and a lot of sort of pre-flight things you got to do before you. you know. What are some of the other te- technical things? Like I didn't know until I went to see it at the new neon that the the screen is not actually curved the screen is is a million little flat strips that are right. lined up yeah. in a curve because they'd splash light onto the opposite side yeah you could uh, you could have uh, and, but you always it always would sort of look like there's miniature scratches uh, and the bigger the screen because those those bands, those louvers, are the same size. I think they're about a half inch wide. So the bigger the screen you have, the more they disappear. Okay. And the neon didn't have that gigantic of a screen, so you would see some slight, what would appear to be scratches on the film that, you know, after a while you got used to it and didn't matter. You know, right. Same way with Bradford, England. It's the same size screen and they had it neon. And you do notice the louvers, especially if the air conditioner is on and it's wiggling them a little bit. <laughs> When it was a 100-foot-wide screen, like at the Cooper in Denver and Minneapolis and the Indian Hills in Omaha, it was 105 feet wide, I think, the the louvers sort of disappeared, unless you were like in the front row or something. Yeah. All right, so there were also these rival processes uh, mm-hmm. that were still three projectors. Uh, in in the West, there was Cinemarical, and that's what right. Wind, Windjammer, which you've also worked on, was uh, released in. And then there's also the Russian Kino Panorama. Uh, right. But uh, yeah, tell me about, let's talk about Cinemarical first. What was that? Uh, Cinemarical came out and the, the, they started filming Windjammer, I think in 56, 57. Uh, yeah, 50, latter part of 56. And uh, because they couldn't do a Cinerama thing because of the patents and everything, what they did, because Cinerama had kind of fallen, uh, not out of popularity, but the, but all the guys were kind of being laid off, right? 
So they got all the engineers from Cinerama together, and how can we get around the Cinerama patents and yet come up with something similar? So they did the six perf. They did 26 frames per second. They had a, a mirror system, which was actually superior to Cinerama as far as blend lines are concerned and stuff and joining the images together. The, curve, the screen was slightly less curved, but it didn't matter because the systems were so compatible with each other, even though the camera was completely different, they got around the patents. And you could play Windjammer at a Cinerama theater. All you had to do was flop the left and right, I mean, the uh, flop the uh, Abel and Charlie panels because it was shot through a mirror. And then you just make some slight adjustments for the panel blend line, and you could run Windjammer at any Cinerama theater. Yeah, I was just going to say, 1958, you have South Seas Adventure and Windjammer. You have rival uh, yeah. Cinerama movies happening. That shows you how popular Cinerama was, that it created these rivals. Yeah, everybody yeah. wanted to make that, you know, and I, I bring that up in the documentary that, you know, if because if, a lot of film historians that don't know or don't research things were saying, yeah, Cinerama, wasn't that like 3D? Didn't it die after three years? No, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it uh, caused competitors to show up here and there. You know, there was even one in Texas that had two panels that was trying to do something. I was think that... it was called Thrillerama or something. Oh, OK. Yeah, which would be hard because that would put the dividing line right center right in the middle yeah. Yeah. So. yeah so the anamorphic 70 when did that start to come come in around the same that was time? um mgm camera 65 which they which uh the panavision company uh was trying to ex- was experimenting with things like that and they uh, of course todd ao had already come out which wasn't a squeezed process it was the Oklahoma and around the world in 80 days and stuff about the same time but around 56 57 Panavision was experimenting with stuff, and they call and because of MGM uh, spawned this whole thing. Uh, it was called the MGM Camera 65, which eventually would be renamed a couple of years later as Ultra Panavision. So it was six, 65 millimeter film in the camera, and of course 70 in the theater. But there'd be a slight squeeze to it, and it would so it'd be extra wide. And in theory, they were experimenting with the movie Ben-Hur, which was uh, MGM Camera 65, and they were going to split it into three so they could put it into Cinerama theaters. There were some tests that were done at Technicolor to do that. So there was so much, I don't know, confusion and experiments and <laughs> testing and to try to make everything come out so you'd make more money and stuff. But uh, uh, one of the things we're going to do this year in England is we're going to show some of the original Tadeo tests from uh, Thomas Howerslav's collection the N70millimeter.com guy, and he had this footage, which we've since uh, restored and telecentered and, and put on a digital file so we can play it on a curved screen again, like uh, here's the original Tadeo tests for Oklahoma, which don't have any of the stars in it, but they have a buggy going by and some horses and stuff right. like that, you know. Right, yeah. And, and Peter Graves is in it. <laughs> huh. Well, so it wasn't so much that people were looking for a simpler process technically that was driving that then because i was always assumed that like once you know ultra panavision 70 was practical that everybody's like oh thank god we don't have to run three projectors anymore but yeah i think i think it was it was costly uh, a union thing where you needed to have like the four projectionists up in the booth and everybody was being paid reasonably well a centerama projectionist was usually the older guys in the union that had more experience and and so they got more money and all that so it got to the point where uh 
doing something with single panel Cinerama, so to speak, you know, which is really Mad World was Ultra Panavision, but same thing as MGM Camera 65, basically. That they, they this is so much easier. All you need is two projectionists now because the the reels were so heavy, and you had two guys, one at each machine and stuff, to make the changeovers and stuff. But uh, so they wanted to simplify everything, and plus. Henry Hathaway was very vocal, and the people who directed the drama films, dramatic films, you couldn't make your day on the set. There was always a, you know, it took 40 minutes to rethread the camera, put a new <laughs> magazine in, and, you know, and then everybody hitting their marks or missing their marks, uh, you know, the actors. So you couldn't make your day, and that's why our dramatic films always went over budget. Travelogue's a different story because you're shooting the mountain ranges and the aerials and stuff, you know, you're not coordinating actors and speaking dialogue and all that. So. It basically was a godsend that they switched over to 70 millimeter for these things because you could. It was more traditional, like 35 millimeter photography in a way, because now you can make your day again. You can plan it out, and you know, supposedly yeah. not go for budget. Already acclaimed and applauded the world over, in How the West Was Won, Metro Goldwyn Mayer and Cinerama have brought together the biggest and most distinguished all-star cast in entertainment history characterizing the men and women who conquered the wilderness, finding a new life in this immense human saga of the American West. Well, bits of how the West was won were shot in 70 just because they were action sequences that were too hard to do with the camera, I guess. With the yeah, they were, in, they were... A lot of those they shot with the Cinerama camera running at the same time, and they would use the the Ultra Panavision one as like an insert camera, sort of the the IMO thing again, where you could get the close up of the wheels, and you could get the, uh, or if you had a process shot where all the actors are on a raft, you know, you would have to shoot that, and 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 because there was no process screens, I guess, big enough to <laughs> to shoot Cinerama, you know. But uh, they would shoot some of those scenes. So you're right, it was action, uh, specialized things where they had to shoot it that way with 70 yeah and then split it split the uh, images yeah and in the theater i mean it's pretty noticeable the difference yeah. you know the, the thing that people always say about how the west was won was that they couldn't they couldn't like machine sew the costumes because there's so right. much resolution that you know you'd notice you know, anyone who knew sewing would see that it wasn't wasn't somebody doing buckskin uniforms the old-fashioned way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, we when it jumps from that that amazing Cinerama re- resolution to seventy, I mean, you you know it's happening. You know it's, it's like, happening. Yeah. yeah it's like yeah. bad bad rear projection in an old movie or something. You know. I mean, they did say that about. The costumes, but it was really only the principal's costumes. People that got close to the camera that yeah, them, yeah, made them handmade. You know, the others were just right out of you know central costume or something. You know. Okay, so they did How the West Was Won, which is a big hit. They did The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm, which was not a big hit. I guess it, it was kind of it was a, sort of a big hit in Europe, but not so much here. Uh, it opened up here first, and I think uh, in Europe, West opened first. You know. Hmm. Uh, at least I believe in, in at the London Casino and in, in France it opened first, and then. Uh, but it, Grimm did make money. It just didn't make what they expected to, you know. But West was beyond all, you know, comprehension. It was. I think it was the number one hit of the year. Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did they just kind of lose heart in the idea of making dramatic films? That it was just too hard to do that. What it was. 
it was just too hard. Like I say, directors couldn't make their day. Actors were just disoriented because they couldn't look at the other actor from this panel. I have to look over here, over his shoulder, to, in order to look like I'm looking at him on the screen. And it was just, you know, how to, as Russ Tamlin said to me, you know, acting is reacting, and you couldn't react to someone by looking at them. <laughs> you had to react to what you thought they were doing, you know. <laughs> so... Although today's actors have gotten over that, because apparently everything is on a green screen and you don't yeah. know. Gw- <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow and, and Robert Down- Downey Jr. are never even in the same you know, right, yeah. when they do these things. But, right. Um, yeah. All right, so then we sort of see this is where Cinerama sort of tails off. They put together the best of Cinerama as a... You know, as a greatest hits collection, just to have something to release and keep these theaters running. Um, and I guess that sort of happens eventually with with the Russian adventure. Although, is it true that it only actually played in the one theater in Chicago? Yeah, McVickers, uh, and and uh, which was one of the last theaters that didn't deinstall their three panel equipment, so they were able to run it there. And that was 1966. Best of Cinerama came out just before How the West was on because that kind of got delayed a little bit and they needed something in the theaters. So, best of, and then they would recycle Seven Wonders here and there and then wait for West to show up and, or Grimm or whatever. And uh, but then in 1966, uh, the How Dennis uh, people wanted to put this thing Russian thing together because the State Department had contacted some producers about doing something. You know, we need to be friendlier with our Russian friends, right? And uh, so let's do a you know hands across the pond kind of thing this is a balalaika a standard russian musical instrument like the ukulele in a way and this is a cinerama camera its three eyes can see far wide and deep cameras just like this one captured some very unique experiences that are going to enable us to participate in an adventure together a russian adventure and so the state department arranged it and they arranged to be able to use clips, so they sent over 15 hours of Russian features. You know, they were very, they did about eight or nine features over there. They sent about 15 hours worth of footage over, and they ran it and picked out what they wanted to put in this thing called Cinerama's Russian Adventure. And uh, but it only basically went out to theaters as a 70 millimeter. Okay. Because what? But the to create the 70 millimeter was similar to what they did originally with Windjammer is where you went over to Hollywood Film Effects, uh, uh, Lenwood Dunn's company in Hollywood, and they had rear screen projectors, and they would project the image on a screen and then shoot it in cinemascope or 70 millimeter to get the Cinerama thing in, into one panel. And that's what went around the world essentially as Cinerama's Russian adventure, with the exception of McVickers in Chicago, where they actually had three panels. All right, so then around the same time, we have the really odd story of Scent of Mystery, a.k.a. Holiday in Spain, which is not exactly a Cinerama movie, but I don't know. Explain that one, if if it can be explained. It was, they were originally going to do, uh, uh, Mike Todd Sr. originally wanted to do Don Quixote as his next film after Round the World in 80 Days, and his son was involved in the company, Mike, Mike Jr., uh, was one of the executives. And, and, then, and then Mike Todd died in a plane crash in 58, I believe, and so they were trying to come up with something, should we do what Dad wanted to do with Don Quixote? So they came up with this mystery book that they found. I uh, 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 forgot the name of it. It wasn't Holiday in Spain. It might have been Send a Mystery. Uh, there was a paperback or something written by two 
detective uh, husband and wife team that would write detective novels that were reasonably successful at their craft. So they came up with sort of a Don Quixote story involving that, which essentially uh, is what they ended up filming called Scent of Mystery. And uh, Jack Cardiff had just started directing a couple things, and they hired him. They wanted to shoot it in Tadeo, but they had sold the Tadeo rights to, uh, I think it was Fox, and so they couldn't use Tadeo again unless they paid a fortune to get it back. So they created something called Todd 70, which is basically basically a Mitchell 65 millimeter camera, blimped Mitchell. And then they just called it Todd 70 because everybody's familiar with the name Todd and, and 70 millimeters. So they so it's filmed in Todd 70. And they decided to film this in Spain, went all the way around Spain, quite a few cities, and to do the smell vision thing, that evolved out of the 1939 World's Fair experiment thing as well that Mike Sr. had seen. In fact, they they'd thought about making Around the World in 80 Days using this system. And it wasn't really a system yet. It was just kind of a theory, and it kind of worked on a short film, so maybe we should try this, you know. And so... Uh, that's what Mike Jr. decided to do was to make was to go one step further and make this thing in smellovision, and uh, it actually worked except for one or the two of the opening nights where it didn't quite work. And the, it's like going to a, a, a really good restaurant on a bad night, and it's <laughs> the first time at that restaurant. You see, yeah, I don't wasn't that great, you know. Yeah. So uh, so it got a bad rep, uh, but it did. It actually. Uh, at, a, at one point, because Elizabeth Taylor was involved in this, as well as one of the investors, at one point they sold it to Cinemiracle, of all people, the Windjammer people. And then eventually Cinerama overtook Cinemiracle, and then, because they were showing Windjammer in a lot of Cinerama theaters, and they just finally bought it. They didn't want any com- competition, so they bought it in 59, I believe. No, they made Scent of Mystery in 1959, and then it came out in 1960 in Smellovision, played for a couple of weeks or so, and then it was shut down, and then uh, Windjammer started putting it in theaters and made it, took the 65 millimeter and made it into three panels <laughs> and, and without the smells, but they wanted to rename it, and they shortened the movie by about 25 minutes and called it Holiday in Spain. So they kept all the travelogue stuff in it, Right. Maybe a little less story, <laughs> and through the and no more smells. So they kind of re-released the movie under a different title, but it was only playing in Cinerama and Cinemiracle theaters as a roadshow thing. And did it do okay? At that yeah, point? it did make it. It made money, but it wasn't a huge, you know, yeah. mega hit or anything. You know, it did it did make some money, and uh, it certainly broke even. And then it got buried after that, until we pulled it out of the vaults. Yeah, and, and I, if I recall what I read about it some time back, so Scent of Mystery basically doesn't exist. What you have is Holiday in Spain, which is the edited version. Is that right? Yeah, we did try and find it. Uh, we only found one or two scenes that had sound from Scent, the Scent of Mystery version, which we included as the one of the extras on the Blu-ray. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the movie technically doesn't exist, you know. And the negative was in horrible shape, so we had to take a lot of stuff off of two 70-millimeter prints that were in pretty good shape, and then we have negative, where some reels were in great shape and others' reels were just, you know, warped to the nth degree. So the, when we did the Holiday in Spain, it was a hybrid of different formats, and not formats, but different uh, sources, 
to come up with one, and we try to blend it together so it looks like it's one movie. You know, even though some scenes are a little brown because you can only pump so much color into it. Right. Okay, so by the mid-60s, these various other 70-millimeter formats are becoming more and more popular. You've got Super Panavision and Ultra Panavision, and who can ever remember which is which. But, uh, (laughs) and, and Cinerama basically ceases to exist in its original form by then. I remember... Larry yeah. Smith one time saying, you know, the the last showing was like 1967 or something like that. I'm not, I don't remember exactly. Yeah. Um, and it basically something that had been a huge hit all through the fifties became lost films, a whole collection of lost films basically, because it was just technically too difficult to show them. Right. Uh, yeah. And then some crazy collectors got involved. Yeah. There's a, there's a, guy in Australia that did it, John Harvey did it, uh, and then eventually those two kind of combined efforts to help the one in England, the, the National Media Museum in England, to create the Cinerama Theater there. And then, of course, Paul Allen comes along uh, when the, that theater was in danger and saved it, and then I ended up being one of their consultants as far as how do we install this, what do we do, you know, where do we find equipment and stuff, and I helped them find all that stuff. So they installed it, but they hardly ever use it anymore as of as of four or five years ago was the last time they used it, I think. Hmm. But so there are these theaters that can do it, and the Dome was one that never had Cinerama installed, although they had the three projection ports that were kind of hidden. And so we opened a bottle of champagne the day we installed Cinerama at the Dome because it finally came home to the place it was built for. (laughs) But but was never there until 2000 and, uh, yeah, 2001, latter part of 2001. Well, yeah, and I've been in a couple of other theaters that were built around that time, and they had curved screens. Uh, I think Golf, yeah. Golf Mill in Chicago was like that. There was one in Kansas City. I remember, I think I saw Apocalypse Now in 70 there. Uh, you know, they were still building theaters in anticipation of, you know, this being an ongoing thing at the very moment that it's sort of just disappearing. Well, they were building curved screen theaters in the, gosh, mid-60s, because they were, the Dimension 150 was, what, that was 1968, wasn't it, with the Bible and Pat and stuff. Those were all curved screen presentations. They were, and Todd A.O. was originally a curved screen presentation. So uh, there were plenty of those theaters around that you could run 70 and, and sort of get a Cinerama feel to them, you know. And, then, of course, all the movies, the 70-millimeter legitimate Cinerama, so-called, 70 millimeter movies, you know, the 2001s, I Station Zebra, Khartoum, uh, you know, there's a bunch of them out there, about six or seven of those that were only played or premiered at Cinerama theaters. Yeah, so I mean, the names still had value, uh, yeah. but they were kind of changing what they were selling with it as of It's a Madman Madman yeah. World. Um, right. You know, interesting thing about uh, 2001, I mean, just one of my, my little interests is looking for places where Kubrick got a bit of inspiration for this or that. And I feel yeah. Cinerama Holiday, seeing it, I mean, the dead giveaway is that as we're watching the uh, Ferris wheel spin around, it's to the Blue Danube. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And there's also, but there's also something kind of like, you know, in the beginning of Cinerama Holiday, you know, we've just got like different shots of them flying through the mountains. And there's not really an attempt to edit it together as a continuous, you know, to have continuity of those shots. It's just like, here's a cool shot, and here's a cool shot. And it kind of has the same feel of the, at the end of 2001 and the psychedelic part. 
you know, if cutting from different shots so that you're not sure how much time is involved, what, how much space is involved, any of that. He, he, I imagine he saw some of these. I can't imagine he didn't. Um, but the real inspiration was when he went to, I think it was the New York World's Fair, where he saw From Earth to the Moon or one of these right. cinerama dome kind of, they, where they projected on a giant dome like, an, uh, like you'd see at a, you know, where you look at stars and stuff. Uh, you know, to the moon and beyond, it was called. And they would have a seventy millimeter projected up on this dome, and he did see some of those. At least Doug Trumbull told me he saw those, and that was one of his inspirations about doing space and stuff. You know? Right. Well, I was going to ask about that. I mean, I don't even know if that still exists. And it, if it did, it would be hard to restore because you'd have to tell everybody to look at their TV sideways, I guess. But I guess, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but does that exist out there? Do you know? Uh, it was we never found anything in the vaults, uh, so it, I, they had really hired another company to do it, and they called it in Cinerama, even though it was a different kind of Cinerama, I suppose. But uh, so it was a pavilion that would have the Cinerama logo on the side, and I forgot what the other one was. There was one in Seattle World's Fair too that had a similar. In fact, the building is still there. Uh, where you can see, they do laser shows now, you know, where the lasers are flying across the screen and stuff, but. Uh, so apparently the story I heard was that's what he that's what he saw uh, that inspired him to do it. And then he wanted to do it in three panel according to the contracts that I saw. And then they realized they couldn't do the effects that they wanted to do and stuff. You know, I don't know how true that is because, it, you know, by then West had been, you know, everybody had dealt with West and trying to make your day and everything, although Kubrick was a slower filmmaker than normal, but uh, as far as getting stuff done, but originally it was supposedly in the contract that it was supposed to be in three panels. So they were going to have to revive the three panel cameras again and then start shooting them. And they were in mothballs, you know, but some wiser minds prevailed. And <laughs> they shot it in 65. So. Right. He'd, he'd have still been working on it, uh, you know, through 2001 at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So Cinerama goes away and these, and these different hobbyists like John Harvey that we talked about on another episode, uh, you know, we're we're kind of recreating it. I mean, I saw it at the new Neon. Was that the first place that you saw it again, or had you worked on some of the others by that point? Yeah, my well, my wife uh, was reading Premier Magazine one time. I don't know if you remember Premier sure, Magazine. Yeah. And there was a little blurb about this guy in Ohio and blah, blah, blah. So like a, three, or week, three or four weeks later, I figured, oh, that might be an interesting little you know, half-hour documentary that I could sell to PBS about, you know, uh, inventor struggling to recreate something that once was very popular and, you know, make a little mini-documentary out of it. So I went back there with a, a friend of mine, and we hired a local cameraman. We just shot three or four days at the new Neon and out at John's house and stuff like that. And then little by little, as we were trying to make this so-called feature documentary, we realized, you know, there's really a bigger story than that. There's all these incredible people, you know, Lawrence Rockefeller, uh, Fred Waller, all this. You go back in time and you find all kinds of stuff, you know, even, you know, with Lowell Thomas' relationship to Lawrence of Arabia and all that. So we decided to tell that story as a feature documentary as opposed to John's story. But we still had all this footage of John and Larry and the new neon stuff going on and stuff. So when This Is Cinerama came out on home video, I cut a good little 20-minute tribute to John and Larry and the, and the new neon to, uh, you know, to finally use that footage. But, uh, we, we really wanted to tell the whole Cinerama story 
and to really dispel this thing that film critics were saying for years that Cinerama lasted uh, didn't it didn't it die before 3D died in 1953 or something? Yeah. They just got it all wrong, you know. So you know, as I always like to say that you know uh, it wasn't a fad. A fad probably lasts three or four years, you know. So this wasn't like bell bottoms. This lasted like almost 14 years. And also, I mean, it it launched the whole widescreen thing, which has lasted to and this that, day. Yeah. So right. Yeah. I mean, it's, so. the precise technical nature of Cinerama is one thing, and the change it made to how we look at movies is another thing. Right, yeah. yeah. So, I, we, we made it our point to try to correct film history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A never-ending job. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right, so, yeah, tell me how you got involved in the idea of trying to bring these things back, put them on, well, I guess really two things. One is put them out on home video so people could at least approximate what it was like seeing them, but also restoring them digitally so that there was a way to show them uh, in theaters now, even if it's not a digital way to do it as opposed to three projectors of film way to do it. Well, when we did the documentary, we needed clips to show to illustrate all this stuff. And uh, so we had to come up with a system which was really complicated because this is in the days where you just had telecine, you didn't scan things, and you had to figure out a way to get high def out of standard def. Well, if you got three panels, that helps. So we came up with a system where we would scan it in like a VistaVision image in PAL so we could get as many video lines as we could, and then we'd tilt it up and go into standard def, and then we ended up having the equivalent of high-def three panels blended together. So it was a poor man's way of doing it. It was more complicated on making it sound. uh, So we were able to illustrate the clips that way in the documentary. You know, somebody would talk, we'd show the pyramid flying over or whatever, you know. So that spawned, we wondered if that was going to do this, that it, because the documentary became very popular, it went around the world a couple of times at all these film festivals. And, uh, I got to see the world, you know, join Cinerama and see the world. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, the seven so, wonders, uh, seven wonder. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't quite make it to Egypt, but, uh, it was, we figured that when we went to the company to get the rights to these things, which they generously gave us the rights for a dollar. And, uh, so we figured, well, maybe if this documentary is popular enough, people are going to say, where are those films? I want to see those films again. And little by little, that's what happened. So we didn't ever know we'd end up restoring them all. You know, the only exception is Brothers Grimm at this point. You know, but but we did restore them all, and it was an incredible seven or eight years of my life of <laughs> working on these things. But it, it, I figured, you know, if you can restore three-panel Cinerama and make it look as good as we did, and you could do it out of your home office, people should be restoring movies like crazy. This is off-the-shelf software too. People should be able to restore all kinds of stuff, you know. If they, if you're retired and you're a volunteer, I, I'll take that movie. I'll, I'll fix it up for you, you know, if you know what you're doing. You know. Yeah. So we fixed all of them up, you know. So. Well, and tell me where Smilebox came from. Uh, for people that don't know, the image, it's sort of in a bow tie shape so that it gives you the feeling that the sides, which would have been closer to you in the theater, are bigger 
than yeah. the center, which, you know, once you like let your imagination adjust to it is very convincing for being in a Cinerama theater back in the day. Uh, where'd that idea come from of making it an odd shape like that? It was a documentary I saw on TV years ago, and I'm, by that I mean early 70s or something. Uh, it was one of those uh, uh, documentaries on Hollywood or something, and they had a clip from How the West Was Won, which it, what they did was just create a bow-tie aperture plate and cropped it and made it look like it was on a curved screen. And then they had a, like a little you know matte shot of a theater proscenium and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, because I had seen How the West Was Won as a kid in 1964, and I oh, at least they did that right, you know, and then the other yeah. clips, you didn't need that, you know. So that was the inspiration for it. And then when we did the documentary, we had to come up with something that, as opposed to showing letterbox in a documentary about a curved screen process, you can't show letterbox or people will say, well, what's so special about that? So we did this. We went to a, a, a effects guy who volunteered to do all this, by the way, uh, Brian Ross at a company called Laser Pacific, which no longer exists, but... And he, we sat down in a room one day and I said, well, what's 146 degree look like if you were to create a square and blah, 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 blah. And then how do you map it into that curvature thing, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so we did that and we had some guys from the American Society of Cinematographers come over, some friends of mine, and they said, you remember Cinerama? Yeah, is this what sort of what it looked like? And then you know, we went back and forth. We tweaked it for a couple of days and then we came up with a, something that we, was pretty close to what we wanted, you know? And then somebody said, well, it looks like a smile, doesn't it? Yeah, let's call it smile box. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's sort of how it started. And uh, we refined it over the years. We tested it by when Seattle was still doing Cinerama. We shot some stills of uh, focus charts on the screen, you know, with little squares and stuff. Sure. You know? And we could, that helped us map some of this out so we'd be as accurate as possible. You know? So is there anything that, I mean, you've put out... Everything, as you say, except the Brothers Grimm, all the all the original Cinerama films, even the kind of spin-off ones like Russian Adventure and Best of Cinerama. Uh, you did a second restoration on two of them. What was what was the reason? Yeah, for Windjammer that? was restored twice, and Russian Adventure was restored twice because the the first restoration was the only element we could find which was that Linwood Dunn process, that process photography where they re-photographed the movie on a rear screen. Uh, okay. So you picked up more grain, you picked up actually more flicker, and it kind of had a milky look to it, and we'd try an ed contrast and whatever. So Windjammer and, and uh, Russian Adventure were done that way. And then when we played it at the Dome, one of the, somebody from the Hal Dennis family came up to me, the son, Hal Dennis Jr., and said, you know, we've got all this six per film over at the vault of it. And I'm like, oh, no, I can't go through this again. <laughs> <laughs> and so eventually, uh, and now the Cinerama didn't want to put any money into it. Nobody wanted to put some money into it. So we had some people around the country that said they would put the money in to do it. And I volunteered to do the restoration for free if they would cover the scanning and miscellaneous stuff and shipping and stuff. Yeah. And so people put money into this. They asked me how much I thought I needed. And they sent a check right to Photochem, and we started scanning. All right, so all the Cinerama films, the Cinemiracle uh, with Windjammer, you've done yeah. uh, Holiday in Spain, you just did a thing called The Golden Head, which was a 
kind of Disney style 70 millimeter comedy yeah. shot on location in Hungary with the somewhat questionable comedy team of George Sanders and Buddy Hackett. <laughs> yeah. um, Rich off a of mad, mad world. Yeah. yeah. Um, Actually, that was, that was restored probably six years ago. I restored that six years ago before I did Windjammer and, and we redid Russian Adventure. That was one of the easier ones to do because the negative is in excellent condition and it was Technorama, you know, on the select Vista Vision kind of thing. So that one was sitting on the shelf for the longest time and then finally someone, uh, Flickr Alley, said, you got anything else? I said, well, I've got this thing. I don't know if you want it or not, but it's, it's called The Golden Head and it's kind of the lost film of all the 70s and so they decided to put it out there. Yeah. So is there anything else? Is, is there anything left at this point? Um, or you've no, done we've it all? Used the sh- I don't think so. We've used all the shorts, the, you know, the Fortress of Peace and uh, some of the shorts that we put on other other of the DVDs and, and Blu-rays. Uh, really, the, technically, the only thing left, I suppose, if you want to talk three-panel, would be some of the Soviet stuff and and then the um, so the, the features and then uh, Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm. Yeah, and what's the status with that? Well, we really don't know other than I know there's damage because Cinerama still owns 50% of it. So I know there was a lot of damage on the original negative, and the only thing it's possible to be to restore it, I suppose, if you can, if the YCMs are still in good shape and they aren't shrunk, and you know, there's, you know, you have to do some testing and some experiments to to find out if it's restorable. And then, because it's partly owned by Warner Brothers and partly owned by Cinerama, who's going to put up the money to do it? You know. Who knows? Maybe something will happen because of the AT and T deal with the, you know, the streaming deal with the Warner Brothers Library and stuff. You know, that that could might bode well at some point, I suppose. But uh, other than that, it's going to sit on the shelf. Yeah. So what's next for you then? Are you just breathing a sigh of relief to be done with it all? Or I'm I've been retired for now uh, two years, but I'm still doing stuff. Um, I'm doing an old, I can't tell you the title, but I'm doing an old Elvis Presley movie, one of the early ones, Okay. Uh, right now, and it's this division, and it looks spectacular. <laughs> it's like, oh, finally, to deal with one panel. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what everybody's complaining about. This is easy. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. I think this is this okay. is really interesting and answered all my questions, like whether I'll have uh, To the Moon and Beyond on my TV someday, yeah. and I'll have to <laughs> rotate it to watch it but right, uh, <laughs> yeah put it on the ceiling you know? yeah it's not just that they're interesting in themselves but they're such a piece of another time yeah i call them time capsules they're 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 time capsules of a lost era really that hundreds of thousands of people enjoyed immensely and then they all of a sudden you couldn't see them anymore you know that was kind of a the archaeological part of putting these things back together again is that you know i'm dealing with something for the first time in 50 60 years i'm putting this image back together again Thanks to my guests, Dave Strohmeyer and to Jack Theakston. I'll have links for all the Cinerama releases from Flickr Alley in the show post at nitrateville.com. And if you want to hear more about Cinerama, in episode 26, I spoke to Larry Smith about the late John Harvey. So check that out, too. 
Remember to leave us a rating or a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts. That helps others discover what we're up to here. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Thanks. We'll make it invisible. What? What? Oh, you know what. No, I don't. The head. Oh, the golden head. Here.